You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we open the Brewer's Mailbag to feel your questions on the state of brewing in Modern and Pioneer. What's ailing these formats and how can they be fixed? What cards do we hope to see in the future? All that and more is coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan Online. And I'm joined once again by my guy from Buenos Aires. You know him as Mord to Light. It's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, all. How's it going, Dan? All good around here. How is my beautiful guy from Israel doing? I'm doing great. Yes, it's going to be a you and me holding it down once again. Uh, David is still hiking on the Cotswolds, <laughs> I believe. Having a great time. We wish him well. Are you impressed by his capability of going completely offline for a month? Oh, he's not offline. He's probably like at a cozy Airbnb every night after the pub. (laughs) (laughs) Idly like scrolling, who knows what, Twitter or stalking the Discord and like (laughs) laughing at us. Just doom scrolling on Twitter and seeing us suffer with bad brews and just enjoying life. Well, it's very interesting because it. If you listen to David talk about social media, he has great disdain for you know the modern condition that we all find ourselves mired in. Mm. He insists that he doesn't have any social accounts. And yet he's always sending me tweets. So I'm like, well, if you don't have social accounts, how are you sending me all these tweets? Like you are as as up to date on the MTG discourse as, as I am. And it turns out that when you don't have a social account, what you do is you like manually type in what? the Twitter profiles of you know, the five to seven influencers. Why w- well, he doesn't call them influencers. He just calls them, you know, people of interest. Right? My, my question is, isn't it much easier to just get a social media account and follow these five to seven people of interest? Life sanity points, you know, it's like a trade. I thought it was ridiculous too. However, I do have to admit that if you want to do what you suggest, like I'll just make a Twitter account and I'll only follow the five to seven people of interest. Like, Twitter gets you anyway. Like, they just show you all this crap that you didn't want to see. You can push that crap. Because they're like, oh, it, it looks like you chose seven people who like magic. Here's other stuff that's popular in magic. But you can eliminate... And they just show you all this stuff. Like, they show you things that your seven people liked. You can remove all that. You can... Yeah, but if you don't know that, like, it's... <laughs> and the algorithm's always trying to trick you into following more people. Sadly, I sometimes forget you are all boomers. It's super easy to remove that. You beautiful boomers. So you're saying that you could have a clean feed that only shows you five to seven people? Yes. I don't believe you. Make me this account. Okay. Make this for myself or for David. Uh, you know, for my friend. My friend for David. my friend David. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's for David. Exactly. He needs it. Uh, you know, he doesn't know anything about social media. <laughs> but also give me the password so I can <laughs> like it. 
We can name these Dan and David for no particular purpose. Just a random name that popped into my mind. I challenge you to do it because I honestly don't think you can. I do not believe you can do it. That's a pretty bold bet. You don't know this about me because you have never bet against me. It's not a good idea to bet against me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm cute, I'm stubborn. Hi. So I'm looking right now. Emmy is smiling ear to ear. He's got a very small cat. Which kitten is this? One. Kitten number one. You're number one in my heart, too. You're so cute. So they gotta be, what, 30 days old right now? 35 almost, I think. 35? They're getting so big. Okay, you can fill in for David since he's gone. You're the new David. Come on, insult someone. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Tell them they're bad players and they just follow patterns. You can do it. Come on, number one. You can be the new David. We trust in you. All right, so we have our usual plan that includes the kitten check-in. I'm sure you'll be hearing from them throughout the show. Of course. It should be a fun episode. We just decided to open up the Brewers mailbag because we're actually pretty far into Dominaria United season. If you count spoilers and preview weeks, almost four or five weeks now. So we're starting to see like some of our predictions playing out. For better or worse, people are starting to get a sense of how the metagames are shaping up in Modern and Pioneer, respectively. So we thought this would be a good time to just sort of check in with the people. Exactly. What do people think about the new meta or how things have at least aligned? For once, I am really excited that I was 100% right regarding our beautiful card, Lady Binding. I mean... Maybe I was a little too right. Yeah, it's like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> was it worth it to be so right about this card? The monkey spo. This card is going to be played everywhere. The monkey spo. The finger curls. Yeah, absolutely. Also, unrelated to Leyline Binding, but I, I did say a few weeks ago to buy your sign of Dracos. And I hope you did, because it's gone up to $9 now, so... Yeah, people are making the huge mistake. I tried to warn you. <laughs> people are making the huge mistake of playing this in Rhinos. You think that's a mistake? I think, no, no, I think it's a huge mistake. Oh, you think it's a huge mistake? Yeah. If your main plan is making 4-4s, adding an extra 4-4 is not the way to play around your opponent's way around your plan. Mm. So if you don't have Sign of Draco in your deck... What do you like in those spots instead? Interaction. Ways to deal with a turn one Ragavan. Like, imagine the, the curve of your opponent going... If you go turn two Cyan, your opponent plays turn three Tef, you have two solutions. Concede, or go three cards down in order to keep playing the game. Cyan works not particularly well against the hate against Rhinos itself. Well, that makes some sense, but... That would mean that all current Rhino players are wrong, because I see it in almost every list. I'm willing to make that claim if I need to. Here's a question for you. Would you play... Well, okay, not you personally. I know what your answer is, but you, the customer, right? You, in the abstract, would you play 60-card Rhinos with Fury, like the classic Rhinos? Would you play 60-card White Rhinos? This is a newer build that's been going around the last yeah. week, where it's like, okay, you've got Ardent Plea and Solitude instead. Full set of Teferis. 
And four bindings. And bindings, of course. Yes, there's a much heavier white component now, so you can now entertain Solitude. Or would you play the 80-card mashup that has all these cards? So, me as a board, I would play the Urinos, of course. Me as a customer, I'm in the middle spot between Urinos and the White Rhinos. I think playing Lele Binding is a must. Right. I mean, I guess the the non-Solitude Rhinos does still have Leyline Binding, but they're a little more all over the place, right? Every which way. So it mostly comes down to Fury versus Solitude and Ardent Plea versus... I didn't see them with Ardent Plea. Like, I didn't see Ardent Plea in the 60s. They just still play Ardent Outburst, Violent Outburst and Shardless. I only saw Plea in the Urinos because you need four extra Cascades. Check on this. I could be mistaken, but... At least I didn't see any. Oh, they cut Violent Outburst and replaced it with Ardent Plea. I don't know if that was correct or not. This is um, from Hamburger Jung. Okay. That can't be right. Just saying that out loud just feels wrong. If the list has red, it's wrong. If they totally cut out red, maybe. But they have Fire and Ice, so no, it's a mistake. Correct. So yeah, I'm going back to what I said. Also, spicy show-off in a lot of cyborgs, Quasali Ambusher. Yeah, I mean, I just saw people start to play that. I have no idea if it's actually good. Like, is this just to defend you from Ragavan so you don't get tempoed out? It's a turn one way to defend Ragavan while getting a Triumph. Yeah. That's what it is. Also super annoying that you can't attack with, like, hate bears or anything in afraid of Quasali. But besides that, it's just there for 99% Ragavan. A devastating blow for the hate bear strategy. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you couldn't tell already, we're going to be jumping all over the place in this episode. It is a mailbag episode. But before we get too deep into that, let's just remember to do our housekeeping. Which is to say that if you're enjoying the show, if you like the podcast, if you're a fan and want to show us some support, the best way to do that is by joining our Patreon you can find that at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Make a pledge at any tier you like. That gets you access to our wonderful Discord community, where many of these questions we're about to discuss have already been answered in great detail. <laughs> just open up the channel and people started not only asking the questions, but also answering them much more eloquently than we can do today. Yeah, I think particularly in the tempo regarding ones. There was like a whole mathematical theorem in answer to the question, what is tempo? <laughs> and then... As a true, unproven member of the Language Space Academy had to ask, can you put this in words, not in numbers? Yes. <laughs> so, can you explain this, but in words? Exactly. Exactly. You've painted a beautiful picture, but I need a thousand words. <laughs> it's a podcast, after all. And that's exactly what it was. But I think when we get to it, I might be able to give it a, a little bit of a shake-up. Exactly. And we also do have one new patron we'd like to welcome. That's Brian W. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks so much, Brian. Every patron, you know, helps us keep going, helps us keep spewing random things into the microphone. And that's the reason I love Mailbag episodes. Dan loses the control to stop me from jumping to, from step to step because the whole episode is jumping from step to step. What have I done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unleashing me in the Mailbag episode without support. Because you tend to do, you tend to do the Mailbag episodes with support. You have an David, you have a Zack. Now you're on your own. You're completely destroyed. You're at a disadvantage. It's me like it's like we, like me with the kittens. 
once we game up number, it's just too late to go back. So we got a good number of questions here. I've tried to group them somewhat thematically. A lot of the questions I feel like are around the theme of what's wrong with modern and can it be fixed? <laughs> but that's a big question. Before we get into that, let's start off with a wonderful question here from Bridger, who asks, how is your day going? And why have you forsaken the Raven Man? He's such a cool brew around. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Bridger. So, first of all, thanks so much, Bridger. My day was going quite well. Had a lovely breakfast, got surrounded by kittens, got stabbed by kittens a few times, and they have learned how to climb my legs. So if you hear, if all of a sudden you hear me screaming in pain, just know it's like one of them climbing up my legs. After that, why have I forsaken the Raven Man? I have never forsaken someone who I have never known. I have never tried the Raven Man yet. I also had an amazing day, actually. I went hiking today, went to this canyon called Ein Gedi. You know, if you picture, you know, the land of Palestine and Israel, it's pretty arid. There's the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on Earth. And then next to that, you know, there's kind of like a high valley where there's a valley and then it gets kind of like a higher desert. In between connecting the high desert to the valley, there's amazing canyons that have just been carved from the river. And you can walk through them. You can actually walk through the stream making your way towards these hidden waterfalls and pools so it's on the one hand like a, a mountain hike but then every once in a while you just get to stop and swim oh that's nice really beautiful yeah i had a great day sounds lovely exactly as for the raven man I mean, he's just not powerful the thing is that he asks you for quite a lot in terms of deck building concessions so he requires things to be discarded any player can do it Right? You can thought seize them, or you can cycle your own street wraith or whatever. And, you know, same thing in Pioneer. But is the payoff of this card enough to justify, like, skewing the quantity of discard effects in your deck? It's a little too low, I think. Like, just getting one bird per turn. And on top of that, he's a below average body. And he's a legend, so you got to play four of him, but he's kind of weak. It's a weird card, yeah. I have never felt the love for it, but mostly because I'm clearly not a black player. Like, the last time I have casted a discard was when I tutored for it with Micromancer, which speaks a lot about my liking index. The last time you cast a what? A discard? A discard spell was Micromancer into Thoughtsies. Oh god, <laughs> what? <laughs> I had my reasonings. You better tell us about this deck. I know this is not a formal question, but this has been on the tip of everyone's tongue this week. So Micromancer, or Micromancer if you prefer, three and a blue, three, three. Is it a human? It must be a human. It's a human wizard. ETB is kind of like a spell seeker. You search your deck for, is it any instant or sorcery of CMC one? Yes. One or less. I don't know if there's any instant or sorcery goes zero. No, mana value one, like straight up one. Okay, so you can't get crashing footfalls or whatever. Yeah, you can get footfalls or something fun. So during the preview week, Mord, you explained how you know they broke your heart by making this like a little bit too expensive and not working with Imperial Recruiter. However, somebody <laughs> decided to work on this and got a sweet 5-0. Yeah, they went for the Tech. I hadn't even considered, which is the Wizard Cycling Spell, whose name and text I can't remember. I think it 
something like step through, five mana sorcery, return two creatures to its owner's hands. Very important, it's two creatures, not up to two creatures. It's two creatures. <laughs> and it has wizard cycling too. I'm saying that because I almost learned a game to that. Because I don't like the spell. You're not supposed to cast it, Mord. I, I but I had a worm coil. I had a lethal attack. I bounced the worm coil and I was like, and thank God I had a wall of foments I could bounce. Because if not, I had to bounce one of my lethal attackers. My God. Terrible spell. But wizard cycling for two makes it so you can get something really interesting. Because my original idea, of course, with this sort of deck is adding a recruiter, adding the micromancer, and also to have both a creature package to tutor for and a spell package. However, step through does that, allowing you to get both micromancer and a lot of hate bears are wizards. Like Meddling Mage, Mouse of the Moon, Ertai, um, Dranith Magistrate, Mistcaller, Tide Shaper, Nimble Obstructionist, Mouse of the Mode, Mouse of the Tabernacle, Burrenton Forge Tender, and of course, the most important one, the Snapcaster Mage and Micromancer. Also, you have a Land Wizard in the form of Fumara Wizard when you need to get a land drop. So essentially, the Wizard Cycling spell step through functions like an Elite Armory's Call, except that you can put colorless mana into it, yes. and it can't be countered. That's exactly what it is. And it allows you to just play really grindy games of magic while having a pretty low top end. So if you look at the decklist, they tend to be like 18 one-mana spells. And then you just go up the core from there. Like 4 FM Raid, Path to Exile, Ancient Grave, Flusterstorm, Blood Chief's Thirst, Cling to Dust, Echoing Return, March of the Otherworldly Lights, Fatal Push, Thoughtseize, and the two cards that matter sort of the most, Spoils of the Old and Angel Grace. Because if I can get those with Micromancer, and through can get Thassa's Oracle, now I get a combo win in my deck with the Ephemerates. Okay, so you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but my understanding is, well, A, you know, the fact that Step Through exists is not that important, right? You could do Elidarmory's Call instead if you wanted. And B, Elidarmory's Call control is not a viable deck anymore, so it's actually just the existence of Micromancer, and specifically the combos you can assemble off Micromancer's... Yeah. spell package that make this worth attempting. Not having to play green is also a huge upside because there's no green wizards, right? So, like, there's, like, little to no upside in playing green. So just being able to play up straight up Esper with a really strong Asorius base and you're playing, like, six one-mana spells and an Ertai in your black slots allows you to just play a pretty confident mana base and splash that swiftly and really shouldn't be here mouse of the moon. Oh god. Also, I'm bound to defend my claim that Erta is better than Benzer after playing both. I'm sorry, Benzer lovers. But so the power of the deck, it has to come from Micromancer, right? If there's any power to the deck. I mean, I went 4-1-4-1 in two leagues. So there's something to it. One of the four ones was really close to a 5-0, and I didn't have Yorion in my early card deck list. Because I'm an idiot, you guys should know that by now, you shouldn't be asking for reasons. But the deck felt like... A lot of the time you just top deck one Micromancer and you just feel like... Turn 5-6 Micromancer, look for a frame rate, a the Micromancer, get any answer you need. Path, push, thought seize, cling to the echoing return. And then when the Ephemerate returns, you just 
get back another ephemerate. Or a lot of the time you just go like ephemerate, like in the top, like turn 8, 9, get in your Micromancer with a Cavern of Souls, ephemerate, 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 and then get the spell you need and the upkeep get three of the spells you might need in your deck. So how often did you go for the Spoils Angel's Grace combo? Only two times, one against Tron, once against Creativity. Like it was my way to win the unfair games. I was able to confidently outgrind Ferdex. The mixture of Counterspell, Wall of Omens, Ephemeris, Micromancer, Solitude, Teferi is just like a really strong, like, fair package. Hmm. Like, you're, you're just playing good cards here. There's like no medium cards. So we've, we're just saying Micromancer is a good card. We're just <laughs> going to go with that. No, no. I'm saying you have the good cards package that's just going to really help you at least Hold your stable, at least hold, at least stabilize against Ferdex. Like, if your deck is playing one path, four ending, one march, one push, one blood sisters, that's eight one mana removals, four wall of foments, four counterspell, four solitudes, and to add, you add four ephemerates, that's like a pretty strong base for any deck, right? Mm. That's enough for any deck to interact and buy some time, but I mean, you can't. Expect to win a game off that unless you're doing something very powerful with the rest of the pack. The thing is, the mixture of Micromancer with Cavern of Souls makes it so you tend to just win the long game against practically anything. Cavern of Souls is, of course, an insane card when you're playing a midrange deck. Because if you're two for one relays on one spell resolving, now your opponent just can't interact with it efficiently. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, deck felt surprisingly strong. Like, I was expecting to just join the first league and go like 2 3 drop, and it was like a straight up 4 1 into a straight up 4 1. A lot of games didn't feel even close. So, I think there's something to the deck. I don't know if something insane, but it has legs. All right, well, that's encouraging. A new brew in modern. We don't see those too often. I hate to say it. <laughs> yeah, insane idea by Seno 1. He's also one of the guys behind Gleams, so this guy doing insane stuff shouldn't surprise anyone by now. Also, we're playing a one of Riptide Laboratory that has won me at least two games. Just for Riptide, Lab Riptide Laboratory in Shoyers. <laughs> Amazing. The washed-up Wizards Club. Still able to get trophies. <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Going back to the questions. All right, friend of the show, Kilgore Trout 503 asks, as we wrap up RCQ Season 1, how do you think it has gone? Whether based on first-hand experiences or from whatever you've been gleaning from the discourse? I, I think it has really depended on the continent, right? I heard a lot of complaints in Europe, mostly. In South America, everything was going well. We didn't have much trouble in Argentina. Now there's some trouble in Brazil. In Brazil, the issue is all of a sudden, like, imagine you qualify two months or two months from now, like, mid-July, and all of a sudden they're telling you, yeah, you know what, you need to pay a $55 fee to play. Like, now. Yesterday, there was an announcement. And I know for a lot of people in, like, first world, $55 might not sound like much, but let's remind everyone, minimum salary in Brazil is, I think, $200. Even I think it sounds like a lot, so... And just to clarify, they were informed after they had won their RCQs and were preparing for the regional championship in Brazil, that in order to play the regional championship, you have to pay to enter that after you qualify. But not only did they get told, like, after, like, straight up qualifying everybody, 
It's like you qualify in July, you test for almost three months, and you get told yesterday. It's a devastatingly long amount of time. Yeah, so I guess my initial response to this question is, well, it's been extremely uneven. We can always expect growing pains, but I mean, when you allow each region to have its own company coordinating things, you're going to get this kind of, okay, people in this continent are screwed, or people in, in you know, the North America had a great time. It was always going to be uneven, but I think seeing it play out you know, has been a little bit of an eye-opener. I think it was bound to happen. Also, the changes in MTGO from PTQ to RCQ is insane. That's part of the unevenness. The seriousness and the scale of the RCQs themselves varies so hugely. Like if you go on Twitter, you follow Fire Shoes to see, you know, people are celebrating their victories and say, oh, I won an RCQ. Yes. And then you click on the, the link and it says, well, I, okay, I went three and one and then I drew in to the top eight. And then, you know, my friend scooped to me and we split top four. And it's like, you split top four. It's like, oh yeah, it was a four invite RCQ with 20 people. I'm like, what? So you went four and one in a league, but this is a, a RCQ win? And then on the other extreme, Magic Online, which is the most cutthroat place you can imagine, you know, it used to always have these, what do we call them? BTQs, super qualifiers, hundreds of players. And the winners, or the two winners, would go directly to the Pro Tour. And instead, in the new system, they said you will not go to the Pro Tour. You will still play against 100 of Stone Cold Killers on Magic Online. But if you win, you, you get to go to your local RCQ. And even then, you, you'll have to pay. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, and they made it. And that's what happened, right? Like, people that laid in paper didn't have to pay for the RCQ, but Empty Show qualifiers did. Right. That's just like a little bit of the chaos, right? Like, even in North America, where, you know, DreamHack, at least up front explained a lot of what would happen at the regional championship, but they didn't quite explain, since it's at a DreamHack event, do you buy a badge? Well, if you won at a store or a CQ, you know, you, you get a free badge. But if you qualify some other way, via Magic Online or via whatever the Hall of Fame Pro Players Club is these days, you got to buy the DreamHack badge just to like get into the hall to play in the regional championship. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's not as extreme as what you're describing in Brazil, but yeah, it's very uneven. Yeah, it was quite a shock. I do really appreciate Wizards giving it like the right step. This is clearly what, like the step to make towards competitive play. They just didn't make it very well, and I hope they start fixing it. Right. I mean, season two starting soon, we'll see. In favor, I mean, positive reviews is that at least in North America, it did feel like there was a regular schedule of events that mattered in the various parts of the country. Like I had people actually text me and say, Hey, there's an event coming up in a couple of weeks. You know, let's, let's think about going to it, which did not happen. Well, a cause of COVID, but also just, we didn't have any, any regular thing to like look forward to. So just like having stuff on the schedule that we can choose to care about is a positive step might be nice if they did a you know a single format for every season so that we were at least all talking about the same format for the duration of the three months but i guess people would have different opinions about that yeah that's just how it goes yeah and i think the last piece is that you know the rcq season is wrapping up but the regional championships themselves have not actually happened yet and i think a lot of 
like how I feel about the whole thing will depend on how those go. Like if people come back from those energized, like, oh, this was a great event. It felt like nationals, you know, it was a meaningful tournament with prizes and stakes. All the process of qualifying for these was worth it. Then yeah, this is actually an improvement. But if it turns out that the regional championships are like kind of like a bummer, like they're kind of like a high stress PTQ, then all we've done is recreate the original PPTQ system where it's just kind of busy work. You have to do all the RCQs just to qualify for an RC that isn't even that fun. Yeah. Like if that's what happens, then this is not a great system. Anyway, long answer, but I have been thinking about this a lot for the last several months, so I'm glad that Kilgore posed the question now. So step in the right direction, but needs a lot of tuning. All right, our next question comes from Coggamer, who asks, how has brewing in modern changed in a post-modern Horizon 2 world? What in a standard set would excite you as a brewer in this post-MH2 world? So I think I have a clear answer to this, and it sort of comes in the form of, like we were just discussing the Micromancer combo, right? Like two seconds ago, the Micromancer deck. And literally that deck starts with its base being for Ephemerate, for Solitude, for Endings. Also for Counter Spell, which like you or not is an MH2 card. So even if you have a new shell nowadays, even if you're going to try something new, the MH2 two shells slash power um, word of the spark cards have to be in your deck for you to have a fighting chance mh2 didn't go ahead and prohibit archetypes but it diminished card selection for all archetypes so in this current meta practically every archetype is viable as long as you for don't forget your mh2 cards word of the spark mh1 cards at home yeah i think <laughs> One way to answer this question is to look at Aspiring Spike and see what he plays. I mean, he's one of the best brewers out there. You look at what he plays, he does not play bad cards. For good reason, obviously. Like he wants to like put on a quality stream as part of his brand, is that you know he innovates new decks and wins with them. But if you look at some of these decks, it's like he's just taken the 10 playables. Of course, there's more than 10. There's 20 the 20 playables and just sort of rearrange them in slightly different configurations. That's the MH2 way. Yeah, you just have to do that. It's like you're no longer allowed to play bad cards. And if I had to specify what a bad card is, it's an underpowered card. A card that is like, okay, we're talking about Micromancer. (laughs) That's a proper brew. Are any of those bad cards? Well, is Micromancer a bad card? It can be passable. Like, it does enough when it comes into play as long as, you know, the rest of your deck is super cheap, right? So modern, you'd have powerful stuff that, you know, draws a bunch of cards or whatever, or super efficient slash free stuff. And between those, you have enough tools to, like, create the conditions for something like a Micromancer. But that's not enough to support a Raven Man. (laughs) I think modern requires you to have a perfect mixture of efficiency with long-run capabilities. Because you need to be efficient enough so you don't get crushed by a Tron and Ragavan, but also you have to be grinding enough so you are able to recoup after your opponent gets your two-for-ones going. Like, you have to beat both the Ragavan and the Expressive Iteration. And that's not easy, yeah. And that's not easy, so we are forced into playing cards of that power level. You're forced to play your Solitude, which is both the early answer for Ragavan and the 2-for-1 against the Murtide. You're forced to play the ending, which answers literally anything. 
you are forced into that scenario where playing the weak cards is not gonna work, even if your matchup is theoretically good, because the raw strength in some cards is just gonna outvalue you, even if your cards line up well. So the second part of Call Gamer's question, what in a standard set would excite you as a brewer in this post-MH2 world? Well, for me, it has to be more than just a modern playable. If you look back at the most recent cards from standard sets that have become modern playables or staples even, uh, they're kind of boring cards. Like They're cards that just turned out to be super efficient, given the tools in modern, like Leyline Binding. Or they just give you a lot of stuff, like Fable the Mirror Breaker. Unlicensed Hearst. Like, is anyone brewing with that? No, they're just playing it because it's a one-sided colorless rest in peace. Ledger Shredder. It could be a cool card to brew with, but people are not really using it that way. It's just sort of an efficient card. So efficiency alone like, might make a standard card playable, but that, to me, like, doesn't excite me as a brewer. I think what's missing from Modern right now is Synergy decks. More Micromancers. <laughs> I mean, Micromancer is sort of the perfect example of what you're talking about. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a unicorn. It's the rarest of the rare decks like this. But there's very little incentive to like pick a weird card and surround it with stuff to like make that card shine because yeah. your stuff is just going to get broken up for one mana or or zero mana. Yeah, the fact that you that in your average modern league you're gonna face against stuff like grief, turn one grief. And getting flashback means as if your deck is not like efficient on its own, you're just gonna die a terrible death. Turn one grief and dying, turn two one dragon, turn two counter spell means if your deck is not tuned or your deck is not well built, you're just gonna scramble to modern interaction. So we have a related question from Darshik. Darshik asks is a format with good answers better or worse for brewing? And you can probably see where I'm going with this. I, I feel like given the state of modern where the answers are extremely, extremely good and efficient, and it's not a good format for brewing. Like the answers No. The the better the answers, it's harder to brew. When they're so good, it's it really punishes brews. Yeah. The greater the answers, the harder it is to brew. But the more competitive, the more balanced the format tends to be. So it's like at a cost. Like, brewing gets worse, but the format makes more sense, I should say. Yeah, and brewing kind of has to exploit imbalances in a format, but there isn't really any right now. (laughs) Exactly. Like, the only way your deck... Like, when you brew a deck, like, when Neve existed and was able to, like, crush the opponent's decklist was because you are using an unexplored part of the meta, something your opponent was not playing against. But nowadays, every every removal is so efficient... That, for example, that's the reason Nip died. Once you have stuff like Unholy Hit, what's the upside in playing a 5-mana 6-6? Six, six? Exactly. Exactly. And now Leyline Binding can do anything only Heat can't do, so it's... I mean, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Speaking of problems in modern, we have a question here from Chat Nuga. So what did Fat Nuga say? Let me see. Chat Nuga asks... Is the multicolor problem in modern actually a problem? And if so, what would you like to see done about it in terms of printing new cars or possibly banning something? If it's not a problem, then why are people complaining about it so much? Um, I think A, people love complaining about anything. 
B, a lot of people don't completely understand what they're complaining about. I have seen a lot, like, I for the first time in, in a while posted a Twitter rant because I, I saw a lot of people complaining that Brennan Six was the reason money is so good in modern, right? And to that, I had to really literally answer no. And this is something I have talked about, and it's one of the topics I feel completely confident about and quite experienced. Brennan Six being in four color piles is not what makes mana good in four color piles. Brennan Six is a consequence of how good the mana is, not the other way around. You play Brennan Six because green sucks, but Brennan Six is so powerful and mana is so good, you splash green for him and for Omnath. For her, sorry, it's a her. It's a need, maybe. Not quite sure how Dryas identified. <laughs> but, going to the point, Brennan 6 as a card is not the reason mana is so good, like the multicolor problem exists. The multicolor problem exists because we have Shocklands and we have Fetchlands. That's it, the multicolor problem has always existed. The multicolor problem showed up at the first time with Nib, and I'm not saying nothing happened for Nib to be that good, for Nib to actually being able to cast his spells. Nobody had actually tried a 5-color control deck since Nassif in Lorwyn. In Lorwyn Standard. From that day till now, till 3 years ago, nobody had tried it. Abundant Growth existed, but no one played Abundant Growth because it seemed like it sucks until people got a sweet taste of Astrolabe. The multicolor problem always existed. People just didn't want to see it. Now we're paying the price in the sort of cards like Red and Six existing, and they're just insane, because why wouldn't you play? It's two mana plays that draws you a card every turn. So I disagree that the multicolor problem always existed. The shock fetch mana base has always existed, but the fact that there were no five-color decks for many years in modern, shouldn't that mean that there wasn't a problem, a multicolor problem? Like, you, yes, you could build a five-color deck, but A... There wasn't an incentive to, and B, it was like not that easy to do, right? Like if you actually try to build a five-color mana base with just shocks and fetches, it's a bit challenging. And we had definitely went through growing pains trying to figure out a new mana base with and without Astrolabe. Step by step, like things changed, right? Gradually it got easier to do it. Astrolabe was big, Ren and Six was big, and I think that's what you're saying. Then the triumphs happened. The triumphs were a disaster for modern, although we didn't realize it at the time. At the same time, you know, the rewards of going four or five color kept increasing. Like Niv was the first one that was like, okay, actually, let's try to make it happen. But then you get Omnath, and it's like, oh, actually, it is pretty good too. <laughs> this is even better than Niv. So like, yeah, everyone's doing it. Suddenly, everyone's doing it. And now it's like Leyline binding. So yeah, why wouldn't you play triomes and fetchlands? Yeah, but what I mean is, pretty likely, name like this could have existed before, there just wasn't a clear incentive. Like, there, it's not like the things changed, they just printed cards that are good and out of many colors. Well, I think that the Triumphs make it a meaningful difference, for example. I think... Like, they've been a net negative for Modern. I think Triumphs made a difference, but it's clearly not the relevant part. Like, we... We wouldn't be playing four-color control with or without triumphs. We did it pre-triumphs, and the deck would continue to work at 95% efficiency. Maybe not as much in the case of something like Uranus that can't afford to like play any sort of fixing whatsoever. 
I also think that the companion mechanic is partly to blame here, right? Like I, I really think we should just try banning Yorian and, and see if this is still the narrative about four and five color decks. Like what you're saying about abundant growth always having been there. Like, I don't really believe that. Like I know it's been legal forever, but without Yorian, it's just not a good card. Yeah, but what I mean is you still see, you, you could have played a deck, like the fixing existed for it. You can have always justified playing it if, you, if there was a reason to do it. The only difference is Wizards assume, or at least the silent team assumed that playing, as nobody playing for color, the reason why nobody was doing that was maybe the mana can't afford it. And the actual reason was there just was no upside to doing it. The moment they gave us an upside to doing it, people started doing it. Hmm. Well, I think we're somewhat in agreement, but somewhat not. And that's okay. I think that for the <laughs> second part of the question, you know, what should be done about this? I mean, the fact that we can't even agree on where things went off the rails. Yeah. Yeah, I think it probably happened incrementally. You can't really just change one thing and undo it. Yeah, yeah, no. There's not like a specific banning. Banning Renan 6 is not going to solve the problem. It's You're going to see a lot less four-color piles, but not because now the mana base sucks, but rather because there's no reason to play green just for Omnath and Abundant Growth. Like, Renan 6 is a huge incentive in playing the four-color piles because it's an amazing card. It's not what enables it, it's the reason behind. So if you start banning, you really have to chop at the pieces to remove them. You can ban Fetchlands, for example. Yeah, but that's banning Brainstorming Legacy. Which we all know is never going to happen. Yeah. Now, perhaps thinking along these lines, question from First Turn Negator, who asks, would modern be better with more search hate? Seems like all recent search hate gets put into you know, supplemental non-modern formats. But what about something like Opposition Agent or Archivist of Ogma? I don't know what that is. Archivist of Ogma? Um, two mana, two, two, another opponent searches a library. Two mana, two, two, flash for another opponent searches a library. You gain one life, draw a card, and it's on white. Okay. So would cards like these help or would they just create more non-games? Or would they go the way of Aven Mind Sensor, Shadow of Doubt, etc. and see no play? I think they would see play, but I think they are techie cards. Like, so, with the amount of removal you have nowadays in formats like Modern, like, Opposition Agent in particular is devastating, right? But the other, like, you need something with the power level of Opposition Agent. You know what it does, right, Dan? Because I'm kill mentioning the card. And it's like a legacy slash commander card. Two and a black, three, two, flash. If the opponent searches their deck, you get to take the card instead. You control it during the fetching. But who gets the card? You control it during the fetching, and whatever you get gets exiled, and you get to, and you can play it. So it's just a backbreaking card. Right? If they yeah, try to crack a fetch, you get the fetch. Yeah, you get. So it's like a straight up three for one if you get like any trigger resolving. So you need something of that sheer power level because if not, your opponent can just be able to remove it during. Most of the time, you're not going to get anything. So you have to make sure if you get something, it's backbreaking. Like, drawing a card if your opponent doesn't have a removal is good, but you should play a 2 mana choo-choo that draws you a card. Is that amazing? Not in modern. 2 mana choo-choo that might draw you a card. Does that happen whenever they search, or only once? No, no, whenever they search. But they will just not search, like it's a badass shock in that case. Because they can search by bringing you a card. 
So you're saying the Archivist of Ogma is just too weak as currently printed? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not going to be... It's a good card, like, Daxes would play it, but it's not going to affect the meta in any way, shape, or form. Like, yeah, you would play it in a Daxes deck. Going that into Bosatio, that into the Ghost Quarter is always great. Like, at least you trade up a card. Hmm. But it's not something that is just going to win you the game. You need, like, a good Aven Mind Sensor. Needs to cost one, needs to have, like, decent combat stats, and needs to have Ward. I mean, the answer is... Everything needs to have word if you want it to be playable. Yeah, just word two makes a card so much better than it seems. Look at the two mana one one from the one that cuts a counter every time you play an artifact. Oh, the patchwork automaton. Yeah, just giving word two to a card goes from powerless to and really annoying for any deck to deal with. Yeah, because I mean, modern is about power and mana efficiency, and you can take a card that is of whatever power level is printed on the card and it will just die to a one mana kill spell. So you have to fight at least on some axis. So if you can't fight on that, you should at least tax their mana. So yeah, I mean, I guess what do I want to see? I want to see more cards with ward two. <laughs> I want like a ley line of ward where all your permanents have ward one or something. So I think that part of what we're diagnosing as a problem with modern is the mana. And the fetch lands are at the heart of that. So if search hate is one way of approaching that that stops short of banning the fetches, I mean, that's a space to explore. But yeah, the, the cards don't currently exist for that. Yeah, and if they get too powerful, you start leading to non-games with people don't enjoy either. So it's like a really hard like balance, right? What's the mixture of non-games correlated to reducing fetch lands you want? Like, is there a point where there's so much search hate that you stop playing fetch lands, or you just add so much removal to your fetch land deck to deal with search hate? Like, because metas get inbred when that stuff happens, right? Like, let's say they print a lot of search hate in the form of creatures. Then decks with fetch lands start to add a lot of instant speed removals, which adds to a lot of non-control spell slots, which leads to a lot of combo deck flowing. Like, if you print search hate, I think you buff living end. Like, that's what, what it goes up to, the ladder. I think I broke that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I skipped too many stations if I trade a thought. <laughs> so printing search gate. The smallest domino. <laughs> printing search gate, you make combo better. That's all I want to say about it. I can elaborate, but <laughs> it just gets inbred. I believe you. I guess it, it, yeah, it depends on what the nature of the search hate is. If it just gives you more resources when they search, that's, that's fine. If it actually stops them from searching, then that's a wholly different thing, so. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, regardless of how powerful it is, if it's powerful enough, the answer for that is never going to be play less Fetchlands. It's going to be play more ways to solve this. No one is going to stop playing Fetchlands because opponents have better search hate. They're just going to start killing it. Correct. So what will lead is to more decks having more removal rather than other pieces of interaction, which will of course lead to playing less stack interaction and hand interaction, which of course is going to lead to a power spike in combo decks. All right, another modern <laughs> question here. Again, from Kilgore Trout, this one is very specific. <laughs> Targeting one particular deck that apparently is giving them some grief, it's Rakdos Scam. So Kilgore Trout wants to know 
A, if you want to tune your deck to beat Rakdos Scam, what cards would you look to fit into your deck? And B, if the meta seems to be full of one particular deck, and he's saying he's basing this both online and in paper, the same Rakdos deck. Rakdos Scam and Creativity are freaking everywhere. You have to be prepared to face those two decks every single league. Maybe multiple times. So if the meta seems full of that, when should you hard focus your 75 on beating that deck? Well, let's just start with the first question. Okay, specifically Rakdos Scam. This refers to a deck that plays Grief, Fury, and cards that bring those back from the graveyard after they've been evoked. So you can kind of grift somebody out of the game on turn one. Yeah. But they also grind decently well. I mean, it's just a Rakdos deck beyond that. It doesn't grind particularly well because unless like the ones that have a favorite, this isn't even a 3-4-3, three, three, it's like a 2-4-3, they go down, down in cards in order to get a 4-3. It's like a really, de- it's like a Delvery-like deck. They're really focusing on protecting their threats. But the thing is, if you get turn one Grease, followed by dashing Ragavan every turn, it doesn't matter if they can't grind. They're, you're taking six points of damage every turn and they're making treasures. You're dying. So the card that comes to mind is Veil of Summer. Like, if I had one card in my hand against this deck, that's the card I would choose. Does see a fair amount of play in sideboards right now. I don't know how effective it is. I mean, do you have any thoughts on this, Mord? It's pretty good. Like, Veil of Summer, it's a pretty good card against them. The thing is, it isn't so good against creativity. Like, you sideboard it in. Against particularly Ragnos Scam is great at stopping a lot of the stuff, but... Rakdos Scam works in a way sort of close to like four color as against hate, in that it really doesn't fall to hate. You beat those decks by playing the decks that beat them. You don't beat four color with a cyborg plan, you beat four color with combo. And you beat Rakdos Scam playing a deck that top decks better than they do. I think that's a good rule of thumb. Don't try to like find the tech. <laughs> don't tech out your deck to beat one deck, just play something else. On the contrary, um, against decks like Creativity, yeah, discarding to Surgical is going to win you a lot of the games. Surgical is ironically a card that's pretty good against both of those decks, if you have ways to get Archons into the graveyard, against Creativity, of course. Because against Scam, Surgicaling the creature, once they it makes them, like, they really need to, the first wave has to go on the Surgical. Which means if you have any removal and it's a speed plus a surgical, they cannot give it undying. Follow that if they go for a fury line and you have a surgical, you just straight up lock them, get them out of the game. A lot of the time they will just go against decks that don't have any ways to remove a 4-4, they will just go turn 1, fury, undying, get an 8-4 in play. And a surgical can just lock them out of the game. So for the second question, when the meta seems full of a particular deck, what should you do? And in a roundabout way, part of the answer is that that often is an illusion. Like if you look at the Magic Online challenge data for the last several weeks, Archon Creativity is by far the number one deck. So if I was going to target something, it would not be Rakdos Scam. But it's still true that, you know, Kilgore is saying he's playing Rakdos Scam all the time. Doesn't mean it's going to be true next week, though. Like, by the numbers, you should be targeting a different deck. So don't go overboard just, like, you know, based on one deck that's vexing you. If you do want to take this approach, take A, take the broader approach based on what we know from, like, metagame trends. Or if you have, like, very specific local knowledge about your FNM scene, that's different, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Especially because 
Yeah, you're just seeing both in paper and on empty shield, and that's not particularly common. Like, I never see the same decks at LCS that I see online. I think it's just flavor of the month, mostly. All right. Question from Ellie Drill. When you guys are working on new brews, are there certain deck building rules or heuristics that you use? Gosh, what a question. Well, <laughs> I think each of us has their own heuristics, right? So, for example, Ellie Drill says the rule of eight would be one example, but what about other heuristics? How do you know how many threats versus removal versus card advantage in the mid range deck, for example? That's a huge question. I mean, it's different for every deck. Yeah, but I think, like, for example, I always have the heuristic of I never play a deck that's just a bad version of another. Like, I would never play Mono Blue Tron or Brew with Mono Blue Tron because I just think it's bad Mono Green Tron. Like, I really struggle to play a deck just because it's fancy. I need to justify my decks with something like, okay, I think this is the best at X, whatever X may be. But you take more of a grinder approach. Like, you actually are looking to win. <laughs> and that makes sense. Like, when, you, when you're looking to win, you need to actually justify why you build the deck this way and why you continue to register the deck. Yeah. <laughs> if you just want to do it, run the experiment for science, which is, tends to be where I fall, um, then, yeah, I don't need it to be better. For me, I do not need it to be yeah. a better... For me, I do not need it to be, you know, the best possible version of the strategy. Like, it's okay with me if the deck that I built around the card I'm investigating is a slightly worse version of something else. Now, David disagrees with me on this, but, you know, for me, I just like, well, I just want to see what the card I'm curious about can do. And for that reason, you know, I'm often looking to play a full play set of the card. Like, if the card is not integral to the strategy of the deck that I've built, I feel like I'm not really getting useful data out of it. So this is why, you know, you and I are in constant conflict about whether to play 80 cards or 60 cards. <laughs> so I'm like, if you're more, if you're playing 80 cards, you're not going to draw the card of the week very often. Which again, you, you know, you're saying that it's not correct to put more than one or two copies in its traverse targets, but like, you know, don't you just want to know? <laughs> don't you just want to draw it all the time and see what it does for you? I also tend to play decks that grind a lot more and tend to have toolbox packages, so I really try to go off with playing fewer copies, assuming I will get them when I need them. And I tend to base my testing on, did I ever need this card? Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. That's a reasonable approach for deciding whether it was worth it. Yeah, I mean, we can't go into too much detail on this. This might have to be a topic for a, a bigger show. But my general advice for deck building is, or for brewing specifically, Picture the interaction you want, like the the turn sequence and your best possible sequence. Turn one, turn two, turn three, you know, where you play the sweet new card you found and it all comes together. Figure out what you need for that and then build in some redundancies, right? And in some cases, that might mean finding more copies of certain cards or in other cases, it might mean providing interactions so you have time to like get to this game stage or whatever it is but like have your dream curve in mind your best start in mind see what it costs you and see how reliably you can do it and in the course of answering those questions you'll figure out whether you have a viable strategy or not hmm. the thing is a lot of villa rounds are gonna enable its own strategy while others are just gonna be good role players in another and identifying which role your brew is gonna be based around is really important in how you're gonna just take it to the next level, like how you're going to start actually playing it. 
Yeah, correct. And if it ends up just being a role player in another strategy, then it's like, well, it's not quite a brew in the same way as like, hey, here's Dota the Unifier, make it work, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Cards like Soul of Wing Race are much easier, much easier to just fit in something than Yoda. All right, we have time for a couple more here. More, why don't you pick a question for us? Of course, I'm going to take the mantle. Tarshik, going personally at me and myself. Should we want more from brewing both four color and Yorion decks? The Trixion breeds creativity. I went for the perfect answer to this, which is I'm gonna use my rights as a nobleman of the court and demand a trial by my equals, which includes my co-host and of course my CEO and no one else, so only they can shut me under the eyes of God. Well, you you know what David thinks about this. He thinks that Yorian shouldn't exist, and also that it's an affront to brewing when you play 80 cards and fewer than four copies of the card of the week. And I kind of agree with that. I understand why it's like not a great financial decision to do so. But I'm, I'm persuaded finally by what Darsha says. You know, restriction breeds creativity. You got to force yourself to play 60. Why? <laughs> For science. <laughs> I mean, I can force myself to not play in four color piles. That's something I can live with. But I can only play 60 when the deck demands it. And weirdly, does it do? Weirdly, that's a deck demand the 60 card slot. The last time I played 60 was with Media. And that was because I had to. You had to, exactly. You had to. No choice. <laughs> I can't, even I can't Eurionize Ursa and Media. I mean, there's a lot of ETBs in there. You could just do it. <laughs> see, see, that's, that's how it goes wrong. The moment I use that thought in my mind, I just avoid counting ETBs if I don't need to play Yorion. Because I know if I start counting ETBs, I will start doing math of how many I have to add. I mean, we just don't need companions in Magic. The game is fine without them. But it's better with them. My solution is very clean <laughs> and final on this matter. Don't even give more of the option to, to play just Yorion. Just one Yorion. <laughs> exactly. After that, Mile Pro goes, thoughts on the diversity of Pioneer? It's more than 30% Ragdoss or Monogreen. What do you guys think this is problematic? Personally, I started, I stopped playing Pioneer because I got sick of playing Battlecruiser Magic. In Pioneer, mo most games go along the sidelines of each player doing what they want and hoping it goes weird than what your opponent does because interaction is really, really, really bad in the format. For most decks. Diversity is at a low point right now. Yeah. Things ebb and flow. So this could change, obviously, but yeah, it's it's not great on that front at the moment. <laughs> it's probably a function of like the format getting more powerful. Yeah, I, I hope when the when amount of cards in the format grows, it causes that like diversity to like extend it tends to happen as long as a color is not particularly overpowered the more cards there are the more diverse the format becomes standard is less diverse than pioneer pioneer is less diverse than modern modern is a bit more diverse than legacy but that's mostly because of the power level of blue in legacy but yeah as the more cards you have the more diversity you tend to have and the power with pioneer right now is there's like a bunch of cards that are mightily more powerful than the others same happens in modern but the modern list of powerful cards is much bigger than the pioneer list of powerful cards. 
so I think they're just locked into playing that. People say, oh, in modern you're only playing MH2, and yeah, and in Pioneer, if you play Rare, you're playing, you're playing for um, Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Even if you're not playing Red, if you're playing a mono-white deck, you're likely to splash Red for Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And if I'm playing a, a monocolor deck, I'm playing for Nyctos. And if I'm playing for Nyctos and I'm playing a monocolor deck, why am I not adding Karn? Literally, that's how a mono-white deck spawned a week ago. It just lures into itself because some cards are clearly more powerful than the others. Which I think sadly is a problem, but with some luck it can fix on its own. Hmm. Related to that, Shoshi Boys asks, what modern card do you want to see reprinted into Pioneer? For me, it's Path to Exile. So we've reached the point where there's years on years worth of modern staples, former modern staples, that are washed up. Yeah. They just don't cut it anymore in today's modern. I think the last time we had a mailbag segment, someone had asked about, hey, what about Innistrad Block, original Innistrad Block? Would that be good for Pioneer? It's full of these sweet cards that at one time we actually played them in modern and now you would never even dream of it. Yeah. I don't think that there's like a particular card to fix Pioneer, but I think that Pioneer could be like the place where these where these old cards get a second chance, like a, like a senior golf tour or something. So the thing is, yeah, we need a lot of cards. And I think printing those old great cards from Modern is the great step. I think mostly, most in Pioneer, they should focus on adding better threaded and better threads. We need more st- cards like Mana League than we need cards like, I'm thinking of what is a great threat that's not legal right now. But yeah, we need more answers and more threads. That's my, th- my thought. After that, so first Renegator with a really long question. It seems like black has become the least powerful slash less played color in modern. In the top tier of the meta, you may only put black cards in your deck if you don't need black mana to play or cast them. Creativity for Archon, Cascade for Living End, Evoking Reef, Ring to Light for Tival, Cycling Street Wraith, even Cord for Yogmoth. A few years ago, the main incentive to play white was for cyborg cards, and it seems finally WotC has pushed white over the last years, and it shows. What would it take to get black again on the top? A bit of summer ban? bringing in powerful new printings like Biotransferent, Opposition Agent, Blank Market Connections, or a whole redesign of the Black's identity and color pie. So this question ties into what Moore was just saying about does Pioneer need better interaction, better removal? So some people say that there's no bad mechanics, there's only bad cards. There's no good mechanics, there's only good cards. The same should apply to colors as a whole, right? There's nothing wrong with black per se, it's just that the black cards are no good. What are the black staples? Well, they used to be cards like Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, Inquisition of Kozilek. When was the last time that like, you were happy to put a bunch of these into a deck? <laughs> They're just like not great cards to be casting right now, specifically in modern. Like Interaction is good, but these are no longer the best interactive cards. They tend to come at the wrong times. They're conditional, right? If you draw a discard effect at the wrong time, like it's just almost blank. You can get unconditional versions of the same thing in other colors. So my problem with black is black used to be good when it was the color of removal. It had discards and it had good removals. What happened? It stopped being the color of removal and that was given to white. Like, straight up, given to white. You know, you had your push, okay, have your ending. 
you have your Bloodsy Thirst, okay, you have your March, you have now you have your Solitude, and then you can have as well your Leyland Binding. We have four white removals that are as good or much better than the best black removal. White creatures are better than black creatures, even when they are sort of similar. White interaction is better than black interaction. So what does black have nowadays? Discard spells, that's the only thing black provides to the format. And Yogmoth, like straight up specific cards like Yogmoth. My take on black is that black doesn't give enough for it to be powerful. As, like, as white was the sideboard color, black is the interact with hand color nowadays. Like that's its one and only role because of how the format has adapted. They could easily fix this by printing a better black threat, for example. <laughs> but there just isn't one right now. I feel like part of it is like not enough black cards, say, draw a card on them. There are not enough black cards that just give you a bunch of stuff for free for no extra mana, like Fable of the Mirror Breaker. We need like a Fable of the Thought Seas, where you know, chapter one is a thought seize, and then you also just get two extra things for free. And if that sounds preposterous, like, well, this is what other colors get. Right? Like, where is the black ledger shredder that just repeatedly triggers every single turn? Well, you have Dothy Voidwalker, that's just not quite the same. It hits different, it's not as good. Yeah, like, black cards have consistently been worse than white and blue and red for a few short years now. And white has completely overtaken black in any of its most powerful aspects. And I think that's going to keep going for a while. So sadly, what black needs is either a complete revamp in the color pile or a huge increase in its power set level for like three sets in a row, all a nerf in the white colors. Because whenever I look at any deck that I'm playing, even if I'm splashing black for any reason, there's only two black, there's only three black cards I care about. I'm considering Thoughts and Inquisition the same card, so it's four cards actually. Thoughts is Inquisition, Kaya's Guide, and Shadow Prophecy. Everything that's not that, it's a combo-specific card like Persist or Malgrave. You have no good mid-range... You, you have no value cards in black that are good. You have no mid-range cards in black that are good. You have barely any control elements in black that are good. You have your combo elements and your discard. And that's it, sadly. Like, the color took a huge beating in the past few years. Even decks like Taxes that used to be also are now mono-white. Or even Celestnia. Because Possession is better than anything Black can provide. That's just insane. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. Sure. So, we have Shad Strobe asking, what is your favorite limited format of all time? What is it for you, Dan? I mean, all my answers are boomer answers. I, I used to be like a, only a limited player for many, many years. Really? Yeah. But, you know, that's been a while, so I'm not like up to speed on the recent formats. Formats that come to mind, Core Set 2013 was a great one. Eternal Masters was great. Modern Masters 2017, the one with Liliana the Veil, that's probably my actual favorite limited format. I like formats where all things are possible, especially irresponsible five-color mana bases. Modern Masters 2017 had that. It had... Cygnus, Talismans, and like I think I had Trilands. But in order for a format to be like super exciting, and here I'm thinking of drafting on paper, like there also has to be that wow factor of like, okay, not only did I like squeeze out some match wins, but like I drafted some like great cards. And MM17 was just like chock full of value. So 
<laughs> it was like you could try to like have your your draft goals like how much loot am i going to walk away with at the end of the draft portion and then like can i cobble together a playable five color deck out of this okay i didn't know you used to be just a limited player oh yeah for me i started always as a constructed player um like i started as a constructed player and my favorite format has to be mh1 MH1 draft is your favorite draft format? Yeah. It was insanely fun. Interesting. Why that? You had a lot of cool archetypes, and like the cards really worked well in the format itself. So, like, you had the Goblins, you had the Chainslings, playing Cat Chainsling Tribal was super fun. You had your Graveyard Eggs, with Hogak being a well-played card that actually played in an enjoyable pattern, rather than Hogak being Hogak. You missed drafting the Hogak deck? Okay. Oh, Hogak deck was fun. That's something. But yeah, it was actually a nice... I really enjoyed that format. And for our final two little questions... Yeah, we have Roman asking, what type of card would you like printed? Or what strategy would you like to see pushed? So Broman is not specifying a format here. What type of card would you like printed? Well, okay. <laughs> word two. I want word two on everything. Everything has to have word. Tribal with word. We can call it like Ward Horizons. That can be the next Modern Master set. So it's like Tarmogoyf. Same card, but word two. Knight of the Reliquary with word yeah. three. <laughs> that one needs a little more help. So there was another question that literally was, what change would you make to a card to make it actually playable? And I didn't want to answer that because we had answered it in the previous episode, but literally my answer was going to be Knight of the Reliquary with Word 2. <laughs> it, it needs more than Word 2. With Word 2, it should be Because fine. they're going to kill it for... It's going to be a 4-4. Four, four. They need a specifically a Holy Hit for 3 mana. That's fine. I'm willing to take the 3-4-3 three, three trade. But you spent 3 mana and they also That's spent fine. 3 mana. You need to actually like no, come out ahead of the I can afford stage. that with a card that if it untaps it, it's going to be amazing. I can afford that. Well, that's a type of card I would like to see printed. What kind of strategy would I like to see pushed? Synergy decks. I mean, they're they're a rare breed, but I mean that for me is the essence of what brewing is, or what at least as I think of this project. Types of cards that might support that. Well, they have to be powerful. They have to be efficient. They have to have a high ceiling and a pretty reasonable floor, and they have to ask you to care about something that you know we haven't really cared about before. So, you know, we talked about Maria last week. We're going to talk about some testing in our next episode that we've done with that. Where it's like, okay, care about artifacts, but specifically non-token artifacts. Hmm. Put it in colors where we haven't seen it before, right? Now I'm caring about a new thing. Right? Certain areas have, like, used to be unexplored, but they kind of played themselves out. Like, you know, caring about converted mana cost or caring about land types. One by one, these are getting filled out, but there's plenty more space. There's a lot of space for them to still print cards. Like, that's the beauty, the beauty of magic, right? There's a lot of space to work around, and even more so, there's space to innovate. Which, of course, will eventually lead to stuff like companions, but then will lead into the whole aspect of how much are we willing to sacrifice in our integrity for progress? <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, I think we should leave it there for this edition of the Brewer's Mailbag. Seems perfect. Thanks so much, Dan, for having me. Hope to see everyone on our next episode on Monday. Exactly. Have a nice night, everyone, and bye-bye.
That's a wrap on this edition of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. Tune in on Monday for a first look at the Brothers War, plus testing results with Maria and new brews with Tolerian Terror. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.